In the last episode, I left you hanging on the question as to why it's possible to translate Isaiah 55.3, referring to David, as the subject of acts of covenantal love. And this runs contrary to all the major English versions, which interpret David as the object of acts of covenantal love. This was not an idea that originated with me, but with Dr. Peter Gentry. So, I invited him to share with us his arguments that appear in his book, Kingdom Through Covenant, and he kindly agreed. This may be a more technical episode than usual, but never fear, Gentry has also written a far more accessible, less technical volume of Kingdom Through Covenant that's called God's Kingdom Through God's Covenants. So definitely grab a copy of that for Christmas when you finish listening. This is the Working for the Word podcast. Before we listen to Dr. Gentry, I want to give you a summary of what he's going to be talking about. The big question at hand is how to understand the phrase, the steadfast loves of David. In English, when we create a relationship between words using the word of, this can often be ambiguous, and the same is true of Greek and Hebrew. Hebrew creates this relationship not using a word like of, but rather by changing the morphology of the first word in the phrase, which creates what Hebrew grammars call a construct phrase or a bound phrase. In Greek, this kind of relationship between words is described as a genitive clause. An example of this ambiguity that comes through perfectly in English from Greek is in 2 Corinthians 5.14. For the love of Christ controls us. So, is it Christ's love that controls us, or is it our love for Christ that controls us? In many English versions, they leave that open for the reader to interpret by maintaining the ambiguity. But other versions like the NIV remove the ambiguity by saying, Christ's love compels us. The NIV decided that Christ in that phrase is what's called a subjective genitive. That means that Christ is the subject, which means that he's doing the loving. But if Christ were the object of the love on the receiving end of the love, then we'd call it an objective genitive. So you'll sometimes hear in Gentry's discussion the terms objective genitive and subjective genitive, and that's what that's talking about. So, the construct or bound phrase Gentry will be discussing is Hasde David from Isaiah 55.3. Literally, it reads, the steadfast loves of David or the mercies of David. That word chesed in Hebrew is hard to translate and everybody has a different way of doing it. Here's a smattering of how different versions deal with this construct phrase. ESV my steadfast love for David, KJV, the mercies of David, NAS, the mercies shown to David, NET, the covenantal promises I made to David, NIV, my love promised to David, and just for fun, some Spanish from Reina Valera 1960, Las Misericordias a David. So, in the midst of all the technical discussion you're about to hear, 
hang on to the core of the debate, which is whether David is the subject or the object. Is David showing chesed or is God showing chesed to David? Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you Verses 3 to 5, according to the ESV. Isaiah 55, 3 to 5, is an extremely important text in relation to understanding both the Davidic covenant and the new covenant in Scripture. Debate has raged for some time over the interpretation of the phrase chas de Dawid in verse 3 a phrase rendered in the King James Version by, quote, the sure mercies of David, end quote. We will engage the major players in the debate and challenge the standard view by rethinking the evidence from the grammar of the Hebrew language and from the versions. We will argue, contrary to the consensus of scholarship, that the sure mercies are by David, rather than for David. Moreover, by properly relating the text in a canonical and theological trajectory from Genesis 1 through Deuteronomy 17 and 2 Samuel 7 to Isaiah 55, 3, the passage in Isaiah can be interpreted as applying 2 Samuel 7, 19 to the future Davidic servant king who brings about the everlasting covenant in Isaiah 53 and 54. The citation in Acts 13 is seen as providing strong support for this interpretation. In 1965, Andre Kako challenged the standard view that Dawid is to be construed as object in the bound phrase chas de Dawid in Isaiah 55, 3 and argued instead that Dawid is to be understood as the subject of the acts of covenant kindness and love. His analysis was adopted and developed further by Buchan in 1974, but was rejected by Hugh Williamson in 1978 and by Walter Kaiser in 1989. Recent commentators follow Williamson directly or simply maintain the standard view. First, Williamson scrutinizes the ancient versions and concludes that the Septuagint, contrary to claims made by Kako, in fact supports construing David as an objective genitive in the phrase chas de Dawiz. He further maintains that not only the Vulgate, as Kako admits, but also the Targum, preserves the ambiguity of the Hebrew. Only the Peshitta supports the subjective genitive. Later, we shall return to the ancient versions, and in particular to the Septuagint of Isaiah 55.3 and the citation of it in Acts 
1334. Second, Williamson considers the claim from grammatical observations that when chesed is bound to a noun or pronominal suffix, virtually everywhere, the free member or pronominal suffix indicates the subject or agent of the kindness. With kako, he notes that the plural of chesed occurs 18 times in the Hebrew Bible. Apart from Genesis 32.11, the noun is always in a bound phrase and the free member is always subjective. Aside from the disputed passages, Isaiah 55.3 and 2 Chronicles 6.42. But do these facts, he argues, necessarily require that we read Isaiah 55.3 as subjective? As an alternative approach, Williamson claims that in every text that chronologically precedes Isaiah 55.3, the one who exercises chasadim is God. Thus, the readers of Isaiah would have construed the phrase in 55.3 as referring to the covenant loyalty of God rather than of David. He bolsters this by asserting that in the first instance where hasadim is certainly postulated of a human, the meaning is spelled out to avoid misunderstanding. And this is in Nehemiah 13.14, where we have the phrase in Hebrew, hasdai asher asiti, which means my good deeds that I have done, or the mercies that I have done, or my kindnesses that I have done. Williamson then turns attention to the far more common singular use of chesed and argues that in Psalm 5.8, Ezra 7.28, Nehemiah 13.22b, and especially in Psalm 144.2 and Jonah 2.9, we have examples where the objective use is possible, probable, and even certain. Lastly, Williamson considers the context of Isaiah 55.3. He argues that the use of chesed and ne'eman link the passage strongly to 2 Samuel 7 and critiques the proposals of Buchan and Kako to demonstrate that the context emphasizes the faithfulness of God to David and not the reverse. Evidence is brought forward to show that chasde David ha'ne'emanim must be read in opposition to berit olam, and that construing the text this way is not only the most natural reading, but also requires the interpretation that David is objective rather than subjective. In responding to Williamson, we must begin by affirming that both Birkin and Kako are correct in observing that the normal way to construe the bound phrase is to interpret David as agent or subject. Out of 18 instances in the plural, in the Old Testament, only two are considered objective, and after Williamson thoroughly scoured the materials, out of 228 occurrences of the singular, only six can be found that may possibly or probably be read as objective. There is no point in debating the interpretation of these six texts. The extreme paucity and debatable interpretation of these texts only supports the contention of Buchan and Kako and strongly suggests that arguments to the contrary constitute special pleading. Linguistic usage demands, then, that the first notion to enter the mind of the native reader is to construe the free member as subject. 
that the free member in Isaiah 55.3 and 2 Chronicles 6.42 is human and not divine is an interesting point that does not necessarily support construing the free member as objective. Williamson argues that in the first case where Hasidim is certainly postulated of a man, the meaning is spelled out to avoid misunderstanding. Hasadai, Asher, Asiti, Nehemiah 13, 14. But he fails to observe that the construction in Nehemiah 13, 14 is basically the same as in Genesis 32, 11, where God is, is the agent of the acts of loyal love. The addition of the relative sentence in Nehemiah 13.14 is motivated only by the fact that it emphasizes the agent and does not function to avoid misunderstanding over whether the pronominal suffix is objective or subjective. In Genesis 32.11, however, Williamson fails to note that the speaker is the recipient of the acts of loyal love. And this may be the reason why here and only here chesed in the plural is not, and perhaps according to usage, cannot be used in a construct phrase. Now, let's listen to Genesis 32.11 that he just referenced, which is in English 32.10. Jacob is talking to God and he says, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of, here it is, steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. The use of chesed in bound phrases, however, is only one factor in the correct interpretation of this text. Other important contextual, grammatical, and lexical considerations are as follows. The most natural reading of the bound phrase in relation to the whole is to construe it in opposition to the Berit Olam, or Everlasting Covenant, of Isaiah 55.3. This Williamson has defended well, as have many scholars before him. For Dawid, one normally thinks of the historical person who was king over Israel after Saul, and who began the only lasting dynasty in Israelite monarchy. Here, then, is the crux of the matter. We know of a covenant relationship established between Yahweh, God of Israel, on the one hand, and David and his descendants on the other, 2 Samuel 7. Yet what chasadim, that is, what acts of covenant kindness on the part of David or his sons, what acts fulfilling the human obligations in this covenant could possibly constitute an everlasting covenant and so satisfy the context of Isaiah 55? Here is where scholars are driven to consider other possibilities, and the conventional interpretation has for the most part opted for construing Dawid as in the bound phrase as objective. At this point, rebuttals of and rejoinders to Buchan and Kako by Williamson and Kaiser are persuasive. Acts of grace and kindness by King David do not satisfy the context in Isaiah 55. Yet neither is the conventional interpretation free of problems. Williamson understands the phrase to mean God's covenant faithfulness to David, giving rise to such translations as, my steadfast, sure love for David, RSV. The NIV renders it as my faithful love promised to David. Kaiser's translation is similar, the unfailing kindnesses promised to David. The fact of the matter, however, is that reading David as an object of genitive 
does not yield a translation such as that of Kaiser or the NIV. The term chaste in the bound free phrase means the acts performed either by David, subjective, or for David. Chaste Dawid cannot, therefore, mean blessings or faithfulness promised to David. It can only mean actions that fulfilled covenant obligations or stipulations. We may now turn directly to the exegesis of Isaiah 55.3. At once the major problem for Williamson, who readily admits that chesed nearly always governs a subjective genitive, is to understand how acts of chesed performed by David can possibly satisfy the context of Isaiah 55.3. Here one can sympathize with objections raised by Williamson and others to the proposals of Buchan and Kakot. Nonetheless, there is a third option, and that is to construe David as a rubric for the future king who will arise from the Davidic dynasty and not as the founder of the line. Clear evidence exists for this in the context, in that in Isaiah 55, verse 3b, is expressed in the future tense. In Isaiah 50, in 54, 4, however, even though Nathatu, I have given him, is a perfect tense, it refers to the fact that Yahweh has planned a future role for the Davidic king to play. This interpretation fully preserves standard usage for the Hebrew perfect or katal and shows how the future orientation is maintained. This option was considered and rejected previously by Franz Delich and more recently by Walter Kaiser following Delich. Delich says the directly messianic application of the name David is to be objected to on the ground that the Messiah is never so called without further remark. This objection is not serious. It wrongly assumes that the manner of reference in Isaiah must match that in other prophets and fails to note the patterns of reference in Isaiah itself. The name David in Isaiah refers elsewhere to the historical personage in the expression, the city of David, 22.9 and 29.1. In addressing Hezekiah, Isaiah calls Yahweh the, the God of David your father, 38.5. The phrases house slash tent of David, 7.2.13, and the throne of David in 9.7 are expressions used to refer to descendants of David, whether in the author's present or future. Thus, the use of the name David in Isaiah shows that a future descendant is uppermost in the author's thought. Daniel I. Block's study, My Servant David, Ancient Israel's Vision of the Messiah, provides strong evidence that the figure of the servant of Yahweh in Isaiah is both Davidic and royal. The figurative language in which the Davidic king and kingdom are portrayed as a majestic tree cut down, Isaiah 6.13, and the reference to the shoot and root in 53.2 clearly connect this text to the vision of the future king who is the shoot and root of Jesse in Isaiah 11.1 and 10. As Alec Motier notes, the reference to Jesse indicate that the shoot is not just another king in David's line, but rather another David. 
the connection between the future king of Isaiah 9 and 11 and the servant of Yahweh in Isaiah 53 in the history of interpretation is as old as the Septuagint. The rendering of Yonake in 53.2 by Pideon, child or servant, shows a clear connection with 9.5 or 9.6 in the English version in the mind of the Greek translator. Key to the identity of the servant of Yahweh in Isaiah 49.3 and 6 in the second servant song. One text says the servant is Israel. Another affirms that the servant will restore the tribes of Jacob, that is, Israel. The servant is Israel, yet he restores Israel. How can we resolve this enigmatic and apparently contradictory situation? There is a sense in which the king is the nation in himself, and yet can also be the deliverer of the nation. If Dawid in 55.3 refers to the future king, a precedent would already be set by Hosea 3.5, a usage more similar than those in Jeremiah 30 and Ezekiel 34, 23 and 24, 37, 24 and 25. With the above exposition of sonship in the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel 7 and the understanding that Isaiah 55.3 refers to a future David, the pieces of the text can now be put together. This approach best suits the flow of thought in Isaiah and best explains what the phrases witness of the peoples and leader and commander of the peoples mean in context. It, is best, it best explains the apposition of the faithful acts of loyal love by David to eternal covenant and why faithful is used as a modifier. These arguments can be unpacked as follows. The first vision of a future restored Zion is found in Isaiah 2, where Mount Zion becomes the highest mountain in the new world, and all the nations stream to it to receive instruction, Torah, and the word of the Lord. This vision, along with the one in chapter 4, shows that the future Mount Zion has inherited the role of both Eden and Sinai, and that the city, once a whore, chapter 121, is now characterized by social justice, chapter 126, as the term holy, chapter 4, verse 3, indicates. The visions in 9, 5 through 6, verses 6 and 7 in the English versions, and 11, 1 to 10 bring a new twist. A future king, a new David, will arise. He will delight in the fear of the Lord, here a synonym for Torah, as in Psalm 19. Thus he will fulfill the command of Deuteronomy 17, 18 through 20, and as a result will implement the social justice of the Torah, Isaiah 11, 3b through 5. According to Isaiah 11:10, the king himself will become a banner for the nations. Here we see that the nations who stream to Zion in 2, 1 to 4 will receive the Torah of Yahweh through the Davidic king. The servant of Yahweh, already connected to this future king, will bring justice to the nations in 42, 1, 3 to 4, and 49, 1 and 6. Also in the context of a servant song, the fact that a banner is raised to the nations is repeated in 49.22.
In short, as the Son of God, a future David will bring God's instruction and rule to all the nations as indicated in 2 Samuel 7. Scholars have emphasized that Chas de Dawid Haneemanim in Isaiah 55 3b functions in opposition to Berit Olam in 55 3a. What acts of Hesed on the part of the future David can constitute an eternal covenant? The arm of Yahweh is part of the new Exodus theme that permeates all of Isaiah. The occurrence in chapter 50, verse 2, initiates a focus. So we have 50 also in 51.5 and 9 and 52.10, on the arm that reaches a climax in the fourth servant song in 53.1. Nevertheless, when Yahweh rolls up his sleeves and bears his arm, no one would have believed it. The future king does not crush his enemies and rid the land of evil by military force, prowess, and strategies, but simply by his word. 11.4, 49.2, and 54, and by offering himself as an asham, a guilt offering, 53.10. Thus the means and manner in which Yahweh's Torah is brought to the nations and in which his kingship is effected among them, a commander and leader of the peoples, are detailed by the four servant songs, and in particular by the fourth song, 52.13 to 53.12. It is the acts of chesed on the part of the servant that establish and initiate the discussion on the eternal covenant in Isaiah 54, of which 55.3 continues the thread. It is because the servant is the covenant of the people in himself that the apposition of chasde Dawid and Berit Olam in 55.3 makes sense. 55 verses 4 and 5 speaks of the future David as being a witness to the nations and a leader and commander of the peoples. This speaks far more of fulfilling the human obligations in the Davidic covenant than of a specific focus on fulfilling the divine obligations. In explaining the phrase, Aid le'umim, Birkin concludes that David's witness had consisted neither of his lot in itself nor of the trustworthiness of the connection between proclamation and fulfillment of rescue. More properly, it consisted of the outspoken praise of God among the nations. Williamson counters this by appealing to John Eaton. Quote, Eaton here finds three aspects to this royal role, each of which fits the context, namely of the king as one who exhorts and admonishes, as one who is able out of his own experience to just testify to God's revelation and salvation, and thirdly, as one who by his very existence is an evidential sign to the nations, end quote. John Eaton argues that the second is the most significant. This fails to consider the central function of the king to effect the instruction of Yahweh in the lives of the people and even to the nations. Quote, this is the instruction for humankind, 2 Samuel 7.19 This is what is prominent in Isaiah. The servant of Yahweh brings Yahweh's Torah to the distant islands. A false start was made in trying to connect David as witness in Isaiah 55.4 and Psalm 89.38, 37 in the English versions. Here's what Psalm 89.35-37 says in the ESV. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness... I will not lie to David. 
His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. And here's what Isaiah 55, 4 says, speaking of David, Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. The idea that David or his seed is the witness in Psalm 89, 38 is suggested by Eaton and found attractive by Williamson. As Timo Veola has shown, Ne'eman in Psalm 89, 38 or verse 37 in English, is a predicate adjective, not attributive. And 8937AB 38A form a tricolon so that 8938B is not parallel to 8938A, or 37A in English. Consequently, we cannot translate this phrase, the faithful witness in the sky, as does the NIV. Williamson's rendering, and he is established to be witness in the clouds, does recognize the grammatical problem in construing Ne'eman as attributive, but this is not a natural reading of what is a simple nominal sentence or verbless clause. In Psalm 89.38, or verse 37 in English, therefore, Veola suggests that Yahweh, not the Davidic seed, is the witness. The witness in the sky is faithful. A careful examination of all instances of aid or witness in the Hebrew Bible points in a different direction than earlier proposals for Isaiah 55.4 and better suits the interpretation proposed. The role of the Davidic king in fulfilling his covenant obligations is defined by divine sonship based on 2 Samuel 7, 14 and 15 and Deuteronomy 17, 18 to 20. Here's the passage from Deuteronomy, which is God's instructions for what a king in Israel must do. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear Yahweh his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel." The king's rule is to exhibit the justice and righteousness of Yahweh himself. Foundational to this is the Torah that the king must copy for himself and keep with him. Then the divine justice and righteousness in the Torah will shine through every aspect of the king's decisions and government. The logic of being a son of, of a universal deity and the statement of 2 Samuel 7.19 together show that this instruction is not only for Israel, but for all the nations. This explanation explains how and why the king, the Davidic king is a witness and is more to the point than that given by Eaton and Williamson. Nonetheless, there is much more. A lexical study of aid shows that a witness functions in covenant relationships especially with a view to restoring broken relationships. When Laban and Jacob make a covenant 
a heap of stones functions as a witness. As Timo Viola explains, when a treaty is violated, it is the duty of the witness to stand forth and accuse the partner who transgressed the treaty. Compare Genesis 31.50, end quote. This is what the Davidic king is for the nations. Note that in the servant songs, twice the servant of Yahweh is informed that he will become in his person a covenant with the people. Just as the term witness can sometimes replace covenant, so that, for example, the Ark of the Covenant becomes the Ark of Witness, so here to say that David is a witness to the peoples correlates with the statements in the servant songs that he is a covenant to the people. Moreover, the background of Isaiah 19 is significant. David is to the nations what the altar is to Egypt in Isaiah 19.20. Which says, In that day there will be an altar to Yahweh in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar to Yahweh at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to Yahweh of armies in the land of Egypt. When they cry to Yahweh because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. He speaks to the nations of their covenant disloyalty, of their broken obligations to the Creator God, and he brings about the restoration of the covenant relationship between Yahweh and the nations. As stated earlier, the means and manner in which Yahweh's Torah is brought to the nations and in which his kingship is effected among them are detailed by the four servant songs and in particular by the fourth song in 52.13 to 53.12. And this is why a nation that does not know Israel and also one that Israel does not know comes running to her through the work of her king as witness. The king is also a leader and commander of peoples, Nagid Umutsawel Umim. The most recent and thorough treatment of Nagid, particularly in the context of 2 Samuel 5, 17 to 729, is that of Donald F. Murray. His conclusion is worth citing. Quote, in our text, the word Melech is the one who sees his power from Yahweh as susceptible to his own arbitrary manipulation, who obtrudes himself inappropriately and disproportionately between Yahweh and Israel, and who treats Israel as little more than the subjects of his monarchic power. The Nagid, on the other hand, is positively portrayed as the one who sees his power as a sovereign and inviolable devolvement from Yahweh who acts strictly under the orders of Yahweh for the benefit of Yahweh's people and holds himself as no more than the willing subject of the divine monarch. No description better fits the role of future king in Isaiah 1 to 39 and the role of the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 40 to 66 in implementing Yahweh's kingship. Thus, Isaiah employs Nagid because the future David fulfills the role of obedient son in the framework of the Davidic covenant. Finally, one must adequately explain the description of Chas de Dawid as Hanemanim, the faithful acts of Chesed. Williamson finds that Kako merely suggests an interpretation that suits his view, while Birkin sees the problem posed by Hanemanim more clearly. He then seeks to show that when associated with Chesed, Dawid, and Berit, Ne'eman must surely point to Nathan's oracle. If we grant this, it may, be, it may support interpreting it as a subjective genitive as much more 
or more than an objective genitive, since the oracle is just as concerned with the faithfulness of an obedient son as it is with the faithfulness of Yahweh to his promises. Even here, Williamson is somewhat unfair in his treatment of the evidence, and I quote, in Psalm 78:37, we find that the Israelites were not true to his covenant. However, since this unique explicit application of Ne'eman to the human partner in a covenant with God is cast in the negative, it would be precarious indeed to seek to use it in a way to elucidate the quite different atmosphere of Isaiah 55 verse 3. Finally, in Nehemiah 9.8, it is said that God found Abraham's heart faithful, Ne'eman, so that he made his covenant with him. However, whilst this is certainly the closest parallel to Isaiah 55.3, which could suggest a subjective genitive, it should be pointed out against this conclusion that whereas in Nehemiah 9.8, Ne'eman qualifies Abraham's heart, and hence Abraham himself, in Isaiah 55.3, the plural Hanne'amani must be construed with chasdei and not with a singular Dawid, end quote. This can only be classified as specious linguistic reasoning. Whether the person or the person's deeds are counted faithful does not affect whether one is speaking of God or of human beings. And whether the actions are negative in one place and positive in another does not change the fact that the term can be applied to humans. What Williamson has missed is the atmosphere of Isaiah, where in both the section concerning bad King Ahaz, chapters 7 through 9, and the section concerning good King Hezekiah, 36 through 39, the history of the monarchy shows that we are still desperately awaiting an obedient Davidic son. While the faithfulness of Yahweh may be questioned in Psalm 89, it is not an issue in Isaiah. Williams summarizes his approach to the problem as follows, quote, Thus far, we have sought to show, first, that the versions cannot legitimately be invoked to settle the issue of how to construe Chasdei Dawid, and secondly, that although it is true that Chesed nearly always governs a subjective genitive, there are indications that this need not necessarily be so in every case, but that the context should be the deciding factor. This is largely sound. The ancient versions do hold weight in the history of interpretation, but they cannot settle the issue. The pattern of constructions used with chesed, however, carries great weight. While I am not persuaded that Williamson has succeeded in showing that genuine cases of the objective genitive exist, the first datum in the context is the predilection of the native speaker to construe chaste dawid as subjective. So the burden of proof lies in showing that the context requires a meaning other than the subjective genitive. The main reasons interpreters have sought to interpret the text from the point of view of an objective genitive are a failure to see that a future, not a historical David, is in view, and a failure to observe properly the trajectory of the covenants in the Old Testament and the flow of thought both in the book of Isaiah as a whole and in the near context of chapter 55. While some interpreters use such renderings in English as the promises of grace to David, or the unfailing kindnesses promised to David, paraphrases that actually go beyond linguistic parameters for a literal translation as an objective genitive, these renderings really show how awkward it is to construe it this way. The blessings do come to the nations, not because Yahweh's promises to David are democratized in the way that some think, but because a new David who is an obedient son succeeds in bringing Yahweh's Torah to all humans. If we follow through on the subjective genitive, 
The kindnesses of David could involve sharing the victory of the one with the many, so that all are now sons and daughters of God, just as all are now servants. This might be a way in which the future David democratizes the covenant. The question remains, do the Septuagint of Isaiah 55.3 and the citation in Acts 13.34 support an objective genitive as Williamson claims? Let me read the ESV rendering of Acts 13.32-34 for some context. Paul is in the middle of a sermon and he says, We bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. That last part is the part in question, the holy and sure blessings of David. In Greek, this is literally the holinesses of David, the faithful ones. Ta hosia Dawid ta pista. So in this next section, Gentry will seek to show how this New Testament quotation of Isaiah 55.3 supports his argument for translating David as the subject of these acts of holiness or faithful love. He notes that the neuter plural hosia occurs only in Deuteronomy 29.19, where Shalom Yihyeli is rendered idiomatically by Hosea Moi Genoita. Then he appeals to an independent, to independent studies by J. DuPont and Ewald Lüvestam, who argue that Hosea signifies a general expression for blessings and good gifts which may be expected from the deity. Finally, he argues that according to the majority of commentators, This meaning best suits the citation in Acts 13.34. First, one should begin by considering the normal meaning of hosias and the translation technique used for chesed in Isaiah. As our standard Greek lexica show, hosias has two basic meanings. Number one, it refers to what is divinely permitted or sanctioned, and number two, it describes persons or their deeds as devout, holy, or pious. The term chesed was encountered in eight instances by the Greek translator of Isaiah, and normally he employed elaos, a standard equivalent among Septuagint translators. The rendering of Anshe Chesed Ne'emanin in 57.1 by Andres Dikaioi and the use of doxa in 46 for the charm or grace of a blossom illustrate well that the translator is sensitive to context and capable of fully idiomatic renderings. Since the rendering Tahosia Dawid in 55.3 deviates from the norm, it is likely a contextually motivated idiomatic rendering. If divine sanctions are in view, it could mean the divine decrees of David. This seems an odd way to refer to the divine promises made to David in 2 Samuel 7. An objective genitive is possible, but such English renderings as divine blessings or promises to David stretch the field of meaning permitted for Hosios beyond the norm. The phrase may, mean, may also mean the divine duties or holy deeds or things of David. Again, an objective genitive is also possible, but a subjective genitive seems less awkward. 
Honesty, however, compels one to admit that either a subjective or objective genitive is possible and that the meaning of the Septuagint translator is not readily transparent. According to the context in Acts 13, Paul is attending a meeting of the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch where he speaks to an audience consisting of Jews and God-fearing Gentiles. His address is a retelling of the story of Israel, so one must pay attention to what is included and what is omitted. Doubtless, what we have recorded in Acts constitutes only the main points. Nonetheless, the election of the fathers, the exodus, and the period of the judges get only the barest mention as he hurries to the time when Israel requests a king. After discussing how Saul is given, and also removed, Paul comes to David. He makes only one comment about David, but it is important. He will do everything that God wants. This is the faithful king of 2 Samuel 7. Next, he attempts to show that Jesus is the Savior God promised to bring to Israel from the line of David. Finally, Jesus' death and resurrection fulfills the words of the prophets, 1327. In 1332, Paul offers good news to you, second person plural, that is his audience. What God promised to the fathers is now fulfilled for Paul and his hearers, their descendants, when he raised Jesus from the dead. Paul cites Psalm 2-7 and then affirms that God raised Jesus no longer to return to corruption. That the resurrection of the Davidic son of Psalm 2 is to an incorruptible life is demonstrated by two further texts, Isaiah 55-3 and Psalm 16-10. In Isaiah 55-3, he... God said, I will give to you the faithful Hosea of David. Note that the you is second person plural. The recipients, according to Paul, are his audience in Pisidian Antioch, the descendants of the people first promised the faithful Hosea of David. This makes perfect sense in view of Isaiah's doctrine of a remnant. Now, if Paul meant that Tahosia Dawid, Tapista, to be a subjective genitive, and if he understood David not as the historical David, but as a rubric for the Messiah, his argument in context becomes plain. The explanation that David served his own generation is a clear statement that the historical David is not in view in verse 34. Instead, Isaiah refers to the Messiah, since the pious deeds of David in the context of Isaiah 55.3 are the sufferings and death of the servant in Isaiah 53. The reference to resurrection becomes clear. Isaiah 53.11 affirms that after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Isaiah 53.12 shows the servant sharing his victory with the many, and it is natural for Paul to cite 55.3 and not a verse or two in chapter 53 because this is the text that applies the work of the servant to the nations. Once again, perhaps the reason why scholars have labored so hard to find an appropriate meaning for Tahosia in Acts 13.34 is that they are thinking of the wrong David. Finally, not only seasoned scholars, but even beginners should cast a doubtful eye at an entry in the lexicon that allocates a meaning for Hosea in one instance that is apparently so disconnected in meaning from standard usage. The new third edition by F.W. Donker removes Acts 13.34 from the section on things divinely sanctioned and gives it a numbered paragraph of its own. The explanation, however, is almost identical to that in the previous edition. In conclusion, the faithful kindnesses of David mentioned in Isaiah 55.3 are kindnesses performed by David, a rubric for the future king in this text. The faithful or obedient acts of loyal love are those of the servant king in Isaiah 53,
whose offering of himself as an asham, or a reparation offering, and whose resurrection enable him to bring to fulfillment the promises of Yahweh in the Davidic covenant, and who is at the same time the basis for the new or everlasting covenant. The, this future king then fulfills the roles required for the king in Deuteronomy 17 and 2 Samuel 7 by bringing the divine instruction or Torah to Israel and indeed to all the nations. He is therefore a leader and commander of the peoples and he becomes a covenant witness in himself to the nations. This is exactly how Acts 13.34 interprets Isaiah 55. Earlier on pages 462 to 464, I show that the phrase, the chesed of David, in 2 Chronicles 6.42, this is the only other occurrence in, in the Bible of the phrase, the chesed of David, I show that this has to mean acts of loyal love performed by David and not, not God's promises to David. And this is very clear from the parallel passage in Psalm 132, verses 8 to 10, where you have the parallel text, but the alternative grammatical construction shows that it has to be a subjective genitive. These are the acts of loyalty performed by David. So there you have it. That's how you can translate Isaiah 55.3 like that and maintain a helpful connection to the covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7.19. I want to give a big thanks to Dr. Gentry for making the time to record this while simultaneously doing a conference in Phoenix on the Hexapla. Working for the Word is a podcast where we believe the Bible is a unified, God-breathed, God-centered, hope-giving book, sweeter than honey, and pointing to Jesus. This podcast exists to help us treasure the Bible more and go deeper into it and become, ultimately, like the man of Psalm 1. Psalm 1.